Sound Design. Wait a second. They haven't used prediction software enough to know that it's going to be just fine if they do this. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best training sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by Applications Engineer at Adamson Systems, Jeremiah Carney. Jeremiah, welcome to Sound Design Live. Thanks for having me, Nathan. All right. So you have a new setup that you're testing out on us today. So tell us what that is, because it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So I have decided that I'm going to use my iPad Pro. Uh, I'm using Zoom, and I'm using an app called Twisted Wave to record. And our good friends at Shure have given me an MV88 Plus, and I'm using that. It's just a micro USB to USB-C. And uh, it seems to be working quite well. I actually use this for all sorts of field recordings for sound design and uh, interviews and stuff like that. So. Oh, cool. And are you holding that in your hand or you have it on a little I, tabletop stand? I have stand? it on one of those little gorilla stands just in front of me, but uh, oh, cool. typically I have it on a little mic stand. So Jeremiah, I definitely want to talk to you about, you know, Adams and Speakers, the new CS series, um, working with Broken Social Scene. But before I do that, after you get a sound system set up, what's one of your favorite pieces of music to play to get familiar with it? I'm just sort of curious, like, what's your taste of test track? Anything that isn't Steely Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Just alienated half the audience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, lot, I mean, there, there's a lot of classics that we use. There is the I'm terrible with the song names, too, which is also great because they're all just saved in a playlist on my computer. There's the one with the Toto with the drum track and I always use that for the low tom because you can kind of hear the difference between the low end of the flown PA and the subs or the top to sub ratio, especially when you kind of play just that 15 second intro with and without subs a couple of times just to hear the low balance. This is awesome Chris Jones track that we played at our Infocom demo last year in 2019, which is just him and an acoustic guitar and it's beautiful slide pieces in it. But when you listen to it on, I mean, we were listening to it on the IS-10Ps or the CS-10P uh, point source loudspeakers, which have quite a lot of bottom end for dual point source. When you listen to that, the low notes that he strums on the acoustic guitar, there's just so much body and air in it. So they're kind of my go-to. And then there's all of the classics. I also have one track that I use off a FKJ Twigs record, Two Weeks. use that because there's a really nice low sub drop. So it's not one track. There's a whole bunch of things. Mark Cohn, Ghost Train is also another classic. But again, these are all of these songs that I've just learned to know and know again, because I'm always testing mainly our speakers and referencing everything to our speakers. These are things that I know what sound like what our speakers reproduce really well. So it's comparative listening and, and testing that muscle memory, right? So it's not just so much, I just like this song. Half these songs I detest, but uh, I, just, <laughs> I, mean, I, I just... Or you will after you hear them a thousand times. Yeah, exactly, sure. exactly. So Jeremiah, how did you get your first job in audio? Like what was your first paying gig 
in Australia? Uh, my first paying gig was not actually for money. It was actually for Whoa, food. What did you get paid in? Food. Yum. Okay. <laughs> so I, straight out of high school, I went to a university just south of Brisbane called Southern Cross University. And for me at the time, that was the quickest way to get my foot in the door of the industry. I wanted to study music, but didn't quite have the musical chops. So I ended up doing their music production course, which was mainly studio related. But then I quickly fell in love with the idea of doing live sound and was working with the... Actually, I made really good friends with a guy called Troy, who was the facilities manager, I guess, for the music department. And he ran a little sound system for the university bar. And then, you know, one thing led to another. I was like, hey, man, do you ever need help? And he's like, yeah, I can't pay you, though. And I was like, that's okay. I want the experience. So I went down and worked with him setting up his little point source, uh, you know, turbo sound rig with, you know, Aussie monitor stuff, amps and things like that. And you know, the first time I ever mixed was him being like, hey, man, I just need to go to the bathroom. And I quickly <laughs> jump up and like he'd set the mix up. I just put my hands on the faders for 15 seconds and, you know, sure. or for a minute or two until he got back. And, you know, that was my uh -huh. first mix. And from there it kind of grew. And then there were little acoustic acts playing on the, the deck around lunchtimes and late afternoons when people go, you know, knock off after class. And so they started throwing me those gigs, you know, just a pair of Mackie point source boxes with a little Mackie VLZ mixer or whatever it was at the time. And I got really good at learning to mix from behind the speakers. Huh. So that's actually a pretty good skill to have. And, you know, I'd say that I did that a lot in my first 10 years of my career. Yeah. I mean, I still more, more than I care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I still do that. It's funny. We were, we were demoing some, the new CS7P monitor speakers here. And then we got some CS10Ps up. And the first thing I do is always go behind the speaker to listen to it. I mean, first off, you're listening to off-axis rejection, but I mean, you get used to the sound of what it sounds like behind a PA. Yeah, it's just one of those <laughs> silly little skills that you pick up when you know you adapt to to your environment. Yeah. Sure. So then, then they started paying me uh, in credits to get food from their university bar. So I was like, oh, cool. Uh -huh. You know, poor student, I get to eat once a week. And yep. um, from there, then they started paying me a little bit more cash to to do it, and then. Okay. When I left, I just kind of fell into doing this. I've tried to get out of live sound. It's been pretty difficult. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I have so My story has so many similarities to yours, yeah. but the one I'll point out is just that, yes, I often refer to myself as a recovering sound engineer because several times I've just like been really fed up with it and tried to get out and do something completely different and then just end up getting back into it. Yeah. I, treat, uh, I just tried for to people be a boom who, up. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. I tried to go and do location sound and then uh, it never ended up working out. I ended up getting roped back into doing live sound, doing monitors for a production company. They're like, oh, we need a monitor engineer. So I'm sure a lot of things have happened since then. You've traveled all over the place and, and now you live in Canada. Yep. But I wondered if you could take us to some point in your life when you felt like you made a decision that you were going to do something different. And I know that You've had, you were talking about kind of these ups and downs of trying to do something different than come back to live sound. But is there anything that felt like a pivot that was really a change for the good in your career? Like, like what was a decision that you made to get more of the work that you really love? Well, I think the biggest step forward for me was moving over here to Adamson because it, I'd fallen into lots of different jobs, mainly, you know, corporate AV and things like that between the fun gigs and then kind of ended up in a, a gig that was 
it was interesting in the sense that it was the I was do, I was working as a technical director at the museum here in Toronto as a sound engineer and and helping with production. And some of the gigs were really interesting. I met some really amazing people. I met the guy who Indiana Jones was based on. And he did a talk for like 500 VIP members of the museum. And, you know, it was really interesting. It really, you had to spend a lot of time working on the sound of one microphone in a terrible acoustic environment. And I got very bored sure. of that very quickly. Okay. And went on a bit of a quest to start learning some new things and wanted to learn a bit more about prediction software and started doing some, you know, quick internet searches and downloading different prediction softwares and stuff like that, which led me to the careers page at Adamson trying to find a, a copy of Shooter at the time to download. And at that point, Sound Vision, you had to have a USB dongle, you know, DMB or Raycalc wasn't really, you know, commonly known or used at the time. And Shooter, it was well known. I knew about it being in Canada and all sorts of friends having used it. But you had to email to get a copy. I remember sending an email and getting a bounce back and then nothing. And then I saw an ad on the careers page. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But I didn't have some of the qualifications. So I, I went and I made a conscious decision that I was going to learn some of the skill sets that was listed on that application, uh, which was things like CAD drawing and stuff like that. Things that I always had an interest in, but never had a chance to do. So I did a couple of quick levels of CAD training and then applied for the job. And I got it on the spot because I guess not a lot of people here want to move out to the country because we're kind of located in the middle of cornfields and work as an applications engineer because a lot of people in the industry don't necessarily know or didn't at that time know what applications engineers were or what they did. And okay. now, now I, I don't am. know what it is. Well, I mean, basically we're, we're technical support for people who use that brand of product, whether okay. it's, you know, and I was thinking about this because I was talking to a friend of mine who works at Jerry Harvey and they call it artist relations because they're definitely, you know, artist facing support people, right? So they're talking to the artists as far as doing molds and then the engineers as far as getting everything working. But uh, when you're talking about loudspeakers, I mean, we talk to the people behind the scenes. So it's not necessarily, you know, at that time, we're talking about six, eight years ago, at that time, people didn't necessarily, at least here in Toronto, when someone set up an Adamson system, there wasn't always an Adamson person there. Or if you set up a VDOS rig, there was very, very unlikely at that time that there would be someone from L Acoustics or from the distributor there to uh, assist or support. So I didn't really know what it was at the time and then uh, very quickly found out when someone said, hey, you need to jump on a plane and go here and do a demo or set up this speaker or you know go and tune this PA. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a range of stuff that I'd never even thought of. Uh, sure. And so that was a pivotal moment for me of kind of stepping into this role and, and seeing that you kind of end up in this space between the customer and engineering and making sure that the customer expectations and engineering's idea of what the product is going to do kind of meet in the middle and you're, you're there to support that. 
Okay, what I one thing I love about your story is sort of the agency that you took with the path. I feel like so much of us just sort of fall into this career or fall into a job or something happens or we meet someone in a bar, which which did happen to you and we're gonna yeah. talk about in a little bit, but like there's all these things that just sort of seem to happen by random and we just sort of feel like our career happens by luck. I guess I'm lucky. And so for you to, obviously a lot of it was luck and, and that'll always happen, but for you to look at a thing and say, hey, I need to upskill in this way. So I'm going to do that and then come back and sort of get into this and not just feel like, oh, I, you know, I can't do that. So I guess I'll not try. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, the um, thing so is, I don't know. I just feel like for anyone listening, like, like that is a, a thing you could replicate. Like you can look at a job description and see like, oh, I don't have experience in A, B and C. And so I can go out and get that experience. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's positive manifestation. So if you, you know, I've been reading about this a lot and my mother was a school teacher and taught me this from a very young age. If there's something that you want to do, then you're the only thing in the way of doing that. And then also that that path is going to wind, you know, no matter which way you look at it. So if you, if there's something that you want to do, if you positively manifest that, then you'll start making the right steps towards doing it. So you think, oh, you know, I want to be an architect. Well, an architect needs to have all of these drawing skills. Okay, cool. So I'm going to go and practice my drawing and get better at that. Or even, you know, in our example, like a musician, you're not born with an abundance of talent. Some people have more, some people have less, but it's how you utilize it, right? So some musicians are born with an abundance of talent and they might burn out quickly, but they can play like nothing else. But all they ever do is play. And that's them positively manifesting, becoming a good musician, you know, whether they feel it or whether they sat down for hours and just practice one scale for a week at a time. And I went to music school, so I saw a lot of range of people of that were manifesting their careers in music, whether it was something that took them on to be a you know professional musician in the spotlight or whether it was just someone who is learning to be a teacher and being able to craft their skill to be able to guide other people to becoming a better whatever they wanted to be so for me I, from a very young age I decided that I wanted to be a sound engineer I didn't really know what the job description was and that was part of that manifestation I think at about 12 I decided that I wanted to be in music but I'd been playing music since I was a little kid and I mean, not professionally, like, you know, a little bit of piano school, a little bit of this, always around music. And I was like, I want this to be my career. And at the age 12 or 14, I was like, I want to own a studio. And then when you start looking into it and, you know, my parents found little courses and stuff like that that I could do to try and work towards that. And I had a very supportive music teacher in high school and a very tiny little school. And, you know, the people around you see what you want to do and try and help you and you're not always open to it at the time but then you kind of look back and go wow that person really did kind of step above and beyond and and mentor me in ways that I you know I couldn't go back and replicate even if I wanted to sure so then throughout that path you kind of look and go well I want to do this and then you might shoot for something really high up but then not get it and then it's about not letting that get you down or letting it get you down and understanding that, that proce that's a process that you have to go through to find the next best thing. And sometimes the next best thing isn't the thing that you wanted, but it's the thing that was actually better to begin with. You know, so I wanted to go and, you know, go to a big 
fancy audio recording school and I ended up going to a local university, which at the time I was like, ah, it's not necessarily what I wanted to do, but the experiences that I learned there and the people that I met along the way definitely shaped who I am now. And I wouldn't look back, you know, we didn't have the most fancy recording gear in the studios and all that kind of stuff, but we learned how to adapt and the skills that you learn from an adaptation is sometimes far outweighs being able to play with the fancy SSL consoles and stuff like that. So, and you know, that's, that process has gone through my career. You know, I worked as a freelancer for many years and, you know, I didn't always get the front of house mixing gigs that I wanted or necessarily, you know, get put on as A1 or even A2 in some of the gigs that I wanted, but maybe I was a stagehand or an A3 or something lower down the chain, but I worked my ass off to make sure that I helped the people around me look good. And, and when people needed help, I was always there because, you know, I love what I do. I think we all love what we do, which is why we do it. Like you said, we try and get out of it <laughs> when the, when the times get tough like now, but, you know, hopefully when uh, everything comes back online because we love it so much, we're all going to be rushing out to do it. I think that's it. Positive ma- manifestation is everything, right? I, it's, it's what you're doing, right? You know, you posititively manifested doing a podcast like this and it's become successful. So it's, oh, wow. it's, Thank it, you. it's it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it, the hard work isn't, is never forgotten or overlooked. It's always, but, but the hard work's paying off, right? Right. And I, I think it can be tough if you don't know exactly where you're going and yet, there could have been another path where you, you know, took those, you did that CAD training and then you didn't get that job, but mm. then that could have led you to do something else. And now, now you had that skill. Or I think what's most important is that you learned you, you can train in this thing and you can basically yeah. do whatever you want. Like that's sort of like the general statement here. And I'll just throw in one more thing to kind of wrap this subject up for people who are interested in kind of a guide in how to do this. The best book I've read is called ultra learning. And I go back to it still now whenever I need to learn something new. So like earlier this year, I wanted to learn more about uh, filter design and synthesizing filters and, and like applying them to things. And I was able to create this plan by going back to this book, Ultra Learning. And yeah, to make a long story short, the author has like taught himself many, many skills and many languages. And he like, you know, got a graduate degree at MIT for free in six months just by like looking at their syllabus. And so he has like this step-by-step plan there for Mm -hmm. like kind of teaching yourself any skill that you would want to know really quickly, which can be important if it's like, hey, I'm getting this new job and I need this skill or I need to learn the skill to get this job, you know, very soon. So if you feel some urgency around it, I feel like that can be a great motivator for learning. And this book is a really good guide for that subject. Yeah, there's a lot of good good reading material on that. But again, I mean, the thing is, is we, we as humans are so adaptable. And, and if we want to learn something, we'll put our minds to it and be able to do it. Not everything comes naturally. Okay, Jeremiah, uh, let's talk about... Broken Social Scene. So I love this band. You love this band. I read about them in your bio. And I know that you have kind of an interesting story for how you came to work with them. So I was wondering if you could share that with us. Yeah. And it kind of ties into the last comment because it is a little bit of that positive manifestation gone right. Although there were times when I didn't think it was going right. So yeah, it kind of happened over years, right? it, It happened over a very long time. And it was only really when I stepped back and kind of looked at it and go, wow, I thought about this happening and it actually did. And I couldn't really believe it, but it, I guess it happened. So yeah, I was living in Australia in 05, 06 
and a friend of ours came back from tour and he came to stay with us and he brought a whole stack of CDs and this is in the days of CDs and MySpace and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, he brought this stack of CDs and kind of left it with us as he was sleeping on our couch. And I went through them and found this broken social scene. You forgot it in people record and couldn't stop listening to it. And yeah, just over and over and over again. And then my girlfriend at the time and I were looking at going traveling and found out that we could get visas to come and live and work in Canada. And uh, that was around about the same time. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could go to Canada and I could work for one of these Canadian bands? Because at the time, pretty much all of the music I listened to was coming out of Toronto or Montreal. And so we moved to Vancouver and I, I'd planned on being a, uh, a broadcast or a location sound engineer and came over. And after a few months of realizing that that wasn't going to pan out, ended up falling back into production work. And then after a while, moved to Toronto because that's where all of the work is or was at that time and that's pretty uh, far across the country so yeah we I'm just thinking geographically <laughs> vancouver's all the way on the west toronto's like pretty far to the east yeah i mean pretty broke at the time and you know bought a car drove across the country uh worked as a stagehand pretty much the minute i landed in toronto and you know everyone actually thought i was a lighting tech because we'd go and act as be stagehands on all of these gigs and kind of worked my way up the industry very quickly here in Toronto from stagehand to, you know, working as AV, in AV and, you know, you know, stagehands for audio companies and stuff like that. And then pe- people were like, what do you actually do? You know, are you lighting tech? Are you a sound tech? And I was like, I actually, I'm, you know, I've been doing audio for 10 years. And they're like, really? Why are you working as a stagehand? I was like, well, I'm trying to find out where I fit in this, in this industry. So then I started to get more audio gigs and I was really only working for production companies. I kind of skipped the whole doing the venue thing here in Toronto. And then through a friend of a friend, got a phone call one day or an email, I guess, at that point about filling in as a backline tech for a band called Los Campesinos, who were playing at the Opera House here in Toronto. And I was like, yeah, I can do backline. I, you know, I'm a musician. I can, I can fill that gig. And sure. so I went and did that. It was kind of fun. And then just kind of met this random drunk dude who knew the band and he's a bit obnoxious and we went out after for drinks. After the show? On. Yeah, after, well, he, okay. dur- during the show and then after the show we went out okay. for drinks. Because he was working there. No, he was, a, he was actually a... He was just, just hanging a, out. He was just a guest of the band that day. Okay. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Just a random drunk dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And we kind of laugh about this now because he's, he's a, a sound engineer in the, in the touring scene these days. But at that point he was a backline tech. He didn't really tell me who he worked for. He's a little bit drunk and obnoxious, but but yeah, like a couple of weeks later, or maybe even a month later, I get an email from Arts and Crafts Records saying, "Hey, uh, we're looking for a monitor engineer for Broken Social Scene." And I thought it was a joke. Oh, wow. I remember, yeah, and then I remembered I gave this guy my number because he's he decided he wanted me to be my best friend that day, and <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and then, so I, I quoted on it, and you know, they came back to me and said, "Oh, you know what." that's a little bit too high. Could you do it for this much? And I was like, you know what? I really want the opportunity. So yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it for that much money. Wow. So and your dream came true. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought. Okay. It was a little bit less than I wanted, but it was the experience that I wanted to get. And it's funny how dreams can become nightmares because it was quite a difficult tool, but that's kind of fast forwarding down the, down the road. But the first show I ever did was this movie is broken which was the live recording, which became a DVD of oh, Broken, wow. Broken Social Scene at 
the harbour front and it was supposed to be on the island but there was a garbage strike in Toronto. I mean, these are all like these political events that happen here. So they did this show at the Harbourfront Centre and there was so many people on stage. I mean, everything you read about broken social scene is true. Pretty much every person in Toronto is, is somehow a member of this band sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I knew a couple of people on stage. I knew who they were. And I remember showing up and being like, hi, I'm here to do monitors. And the union guys were super grumpy with me that day and trying to navigate between, you know, meeting a hundred people, being able to figure out what they wanted on stage. And of course, when you ask people what they wanted in the monitors, they just say everything. And then you start <laughs> count, counting the inputs and all of a sudden you're at 48 inputs and then, you know, five horn players walk on stage and you're just like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Wait, so and, you mentioned that you knew a couple of people, but the implication here is that you only knew two people's names. Yeah, I mean, I knew okay. who Brendan Canning was, and I knew who Kevin Drew was. And this uh, is a problem for a monitor engineer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have a... Ch- I, I have so a, your board was just labeled with all of these, like, emojis or something? <laughs> I, I mean, I... I went with the typical uh, mark the placements of where all the microphones are and hope that no okay. one moves the microphones. Well, I was sure. dead wrong. But I mean, especially when when you start to see the band move around on stage, you can't really label a microphone with someone's name because, you know, one song it's Kevin singing at it, the next minute it's like, you know, four horn players crowding around it and, and blowing their heart out. But I mean, that was an event, eventful day, you know, apart from having 20 odd people on stage, there was also gear issues. I had the console uh, drop a center channel on me and I had an insert die on Paul Leslie's in-ear monitors during the show, uh, I think if you watch the movie, you'll see Kevin yell at me once and you'll see Leslie wince as I pop the insert out and, and you can see it pop in her ears and her eye kind of tweaks. Oh, uh, no. I was like, now it's like, they're never going to hire me again. But I did Blues Fest in Ottawa a couple of days later with them and it was fine. And, and then they told me that they were releasing a record and I did pretty much all of 2010 on the road with them. So they took me through Europe a couple of times, around the US a couple of times. And, wow, that's uh, amazing. So wait, I, so... The part of the story that we're missing is, did you, did you ever get to talk to them later? And did they ever say, hey, what happened? Why did the show suck? Did you ever get to have a conversation with them about all of the things that were, you know, going wrong? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, that was, so that was late 2009. And I think we had those discussions continuously right through till the start of 2011 <laughs> when I decided to part ways because I was moving to the UK at the time. But, you know, some days it didn't matter. Some days it did. We never carried production for the entire year and a bit of touring together. The only thing I carried was one SM58, and that was really so Kevin didn't get sick. And a couple of uh, <laughs> 904s for the Toms, so Justin, the drummer. Oh, that's right. I was backline tech for the, for the drums too. So the drummer always had the same sounding Tom microphones in his ears. And But, yeah, it's funny because the nights that I get all of the gear I wanted, they had a bad show and the nights that I got none of the gear I wanted, they had a good show. And, (laughs) you know, the more you look back at it now, it's that, you know, it's not so much the gear, it's what kind of atmosphere you can create on the, on stage for the band to, for them to be able to unleash their creative process. And for them, it was chaos. Not, not all artists thrive from chaos, but that particular group of people do in that environment of people. But, well, uh, they seem to be sort of uh, promoting that. Yeah, like how yeah. can we, you know, it's a little bit too controlled. How can we have more chaos here? Let's put a bunch more people on stage. Yeah, totally. Let's see, let's see how much we can confuse Jeremiah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think my, my last big show with them was a Toronto show. And I think I counted 24 people on stage with 20 open mixes. <laughs> so that, that was probably like 10 wedge mixes and, you know, another 10 years or something like that. It was ridiculous. It was, we'd maxed out the profile and we had to add sidecars and bits and pieces on. And it was crazy. I don't know if you have an answer for this, but I'm just now in the middle of taking a course on IEM mixing with Alice Stefancic. And one of the things that I'm learning is that sort of the IEM earphones all have a little bit different frequency response, just like speakers, I guess. And learning from Lorene Bohannon that, that there are some that are good for women and some that are good for men in some general ways. And so one of the questions that have been coming up in this course and then these, uh, the other people that have been taking the course with me is kind of this idea of how to like hear what the artist is hearing. And so if you know a little bit about their hearing and you know about like the frequency response of the IEM, then you can sort of either imagine how it's going to be different or you could potentially create corrective EQ snapshots that would make the your whatever pack earphones you're listening yeah. to sound a little bit more like theirs. Is that a thing that you did? Uh, this is the first time I'm hearing of this. So maybe this is a thing that like professional <sighs> monitor engineers do all the time. Is this crazy? So, I mean, with Broken Social Scene, we were all, pretty much all wedges and the few people that were using ears were really just, they needed just a little bit extra of being able to hear their voice amongst the chaos. And okay. it was p- particularly, you know, Leslie or Feist rather and Emily and Lisa, the girls that were singing in the band who were just drowned out by the fact that there's, you know, five open microphones through five open mixes with five guitars behind them. <laughs> and then a, and then a drum, drummer or two that were really heavy hitters. I mean, on the 2010 tour, we had Justin Peroff playing drums and then John McIntyre from Tortoise yes. playing percussion. And I remember a couple of times during the set, John would get on Justin's kit and play drums on a track. And I had to change the whole snare afterwards because he'd leave a welt in the snare. So, I mean... Oh, wait. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just want to take a, a moment to say that I have had one opportunity to mix John McIntyre and I made a big mistake of putting using the wrong mic on the vocal and it just picked up so much drums because he's so loud but he's so good but he's it was just like it was it ended up being a mess because of that choice the guy the guy hits like a tree trunk you know it's like I remember the first time he played with us in France I had to get up and I remember Justin getting on the kit and kind of looking over at me at monitor or being like what the heck, dude? And I had to get up and grab the spare snare because John had left it like a two-inch welt in the middle of the snare drum. So when, <laughs> when we when we toured together, because it's the C and Cake and and uh, Broken Social scene. That's funny. I mixed the C and Cake, but it <laughs> yeah. was at a tiny place, and, and you yeah. weren't there. Yeah, yeah. So we actually John had to bring his own snare if he was going to play the kit. But anyway, so back to the IAM comment. I mean, yeah. in that scenario, uh, we were using a lot of bad practices because. The girls were really using it just so they could kind of pitch better. So uh-huh. often cases only using one ear just so they could hear themselves. And again, it's just purely monitoring above the chaos. And then mm-hmm. Justin okay. on drums had a set because it just meant that there was less of you know less chaos coming through the drum mics. So we're able to stop some of the bleed through the drum mics. Um, obviously, you can't stop the bleed of drums through the vocal mics, but you know placement of microphones and people on stage try to accommodate from that. So I never had a chance of doing a proper, you know, stereo IEM mix. I, I've always been much more of a, a speaker guy and, and dealing with, uh, you know, mm-hmm. making sure things don't feed back. 
I like I like the chaos and the challenge behind that. It's a bit sure. stressful, but you know. Well, no, that's good that you like that. I mean, one of the biggest challenges for me getting into live sound was how much chaos there is and just kind of getting used to that. Because like every gig I would get into, I'd be like, hey, a thousand things need to change here for this to actually work. And and that's not how live sound goes. You know, you just kind of have to, you just roll with it and you have to be always okay with a certain amount of chaos. Yeah. And it's the, the it's not so much the chaos I find that stressful, but it's the enjoying the troubleshooting and fixing the problem. And it's not necessarily opening something up and soldering wires back together, but you know, there's some people management behind that. There is some creative thinking of, oh, hey, why does this not work properly? Maybe it's a mic placement. Maybe it's changed the drum. Maybe it's changed this. There's so many different things that you could do to improve the situation. And sometimes you, there's more happening in hindsight than actual in the moment. But, you know, planning for the next gig, learning from experience, you sure. know, having a laugh about it when it goes wrong uh, <laughs> or, or, or trying to. Uh, yeah. All right, Jeremiah. Well, let's let's get into some more technical subjects. So you are applications support application engineer for Adamson, and I'm sure you have seen so many things, you know, people doing things you consider right, wrong, good, bad. You've seen a lot of results. And so I want to see if I can tap into that a little bit. And I don't know really how to ask the right specific question to like elicit, you know, some some good memories from you. But basically, I would love it if you had a few tips or just like trends you see, because I'm sure you get a lot of emails and calls and you, and you go out to help people and you're like, oh, people are always turning the speaker upside down and that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Or people are always uh, so often doing these things. So I'm curious if you could share with us some of maybe the most common mistakes you see people making who are maybe new to some speakers or or just, you know, doing the doing a lot of the same mistakes out in the field. There's no such thing as the right or wrong way of doing things. There's there's some pretty silly things that we do. I guarantee if it's silly or wrong or dumb, I've probably done it more than once. Again, it comes down to that problem solving. Like, you know, that's a very open question. <laughs> so, I know. I always see, I, I, I would try to find something that you've like written about it or something, but I, I don't always find that. I, so in my mind, for example, I'm getting kind of a few emails a day of people saying like, hey, can you look at my design? Like, do you think this is right or wrong? So I don't know. I'm, I don't know how to make it more specific, except like, you know, are people putting all of their subs under the stage and you don't like that or something like that? You know? Well, I mean, I have one particular client or had one particular client who insisted on ground stacking everything because they didn't want to have to bug the riggers to fly anything. And this is actually someone that I worked for. And when they took delivery of their new system from us, they were like, oh yeah, we've got this gig. It's here and it's actually in Maple Leaf Gardens. And yeah, we're going to do uh, four ground stacks because we don't want to get in the way of video, but they have to be low. So we're going to do more. I was like, why would you ground stack? Well, we don't really have the weight capacity. Like, That's weird. Don't have the weight capacity, but you're hanging like hundreds of feet of truss and cable and video screens and projectors. Yeah, and Adamson speakers are not notoriously and, heavy. Yeah, I mean, it was an E12 system. It was not that heavy. And I was like, can I see your production design? And they're like, yeah, yeah, okay. I was like, look, you know, I just want to optimize it just to make sure, you, you know, you're getting the best, best, of, uh, best of your money for your new system. And they sent it to me and thankfully they CC'd the lighting guy who was a, a friend, I guess, someone that I guess in the long run has mentored me a little bit indirectly because I was on a gig with him once and he kind of handed my ass to me 
on a few things. And I was like, how's the lighting <laughs> guy telling the audio guy what to do? But, you know, years of experience often outweigh just any kind of technical ability. But anyway, so I look at it and I call him and be like, hey, so I'm looking at this production design and I saw that your, your name's on the drawing. Just curious, like, do you know the rigging capacity of the roof? Or like, is there any extra capacity to hang the speakers? And he's like, man, I told the audio guys it was totally fine. I went, really? That's not what I heard. So this is that bit of a people management, you know, problem solving right there. Uh, sure. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take the same amount of inventory that they were going to ground stack and I'm going to put it in a flown system and uh-huh. I'm going to use all of my CAD drawing skills to mock up exactly what I think it's going to look like. Sure. So I can, you know, solve the argument. And I actually did it all in Blueprint, which is our prediction software. And I went and put video screens in, put some of the trussing in, I put stage in because it wasn't a corporate. Oh, because no so one had done this yet because they just said, oh, it's going to be ground stacked. So they didn't yeah. even know what it would look like. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. So then I was like, wait a second. They haven't used prediction software enough to know that it's going to be just fine if they do this. So, oh, so you know, they were ra- just sort of guessing yes. and using. Okay, okay, go ahead. So, you know, like they had older, you know, EAW and EV speakers at the time, which didn't necessarily have a wealth of prediction software and tools that went behind planning. They would always just go with the, well, I guess we'll do it this way. And I am always a planner. So I sat down and did all of these drawings and went, we're going to do this. And I went down there and I helped them rig it and, and uh, it all worked out fine. And since then, I spent a lot of time. I'm actually, m- my role here isn't actually just applications engineer anymore. I'm also head of education. So I'm writing all these education courses. And cool. every single piece of education course I've written has been usually corrective of someone's, not mistakes, because I think that's a bit harsh to call them mistakes, but helping someone problem solve something in the field has made me realize maybe how something needs to be communicated better. So since then, you know, I've sat down and done several days of training and prediction software with that particular customer, but also lots of others and written a standardized course for how we train all of our users on the prediction software. And I think well, I did some Where can of that I take your course? Right now, it's, uh, it's a bit limited. We had been doing some webinar-based stuff, but it's a little bit difficult to certify people when you don't necessarily have that touch point. So we really have to do it in small Oh, so groups. this is a course that you normally do in person. Okay. Yeah, Got yeah, it. yeah. So we were doing the applied certification and advanced certification training courses, which are two two-day courses that we do, not just a day of working on prediction software, but also a day of rigging and tuning and, and just getting people generally comfortable with the environment of speakers and amplifiers and control software. But yeah, I guess going and doing a lot of these on-site events with people, you know, there was one particular tour that I got sent out to go and support. And it came because the engineer and I became good friends. And he's like, yeah, I guess I'd like to take your system out for a tour. And then they're like, oh, we're doing pre-production. And then the company was like, we're sending out an engineer who doesn't know how to use the speakers. Can the company send someone to help them and I was like yeah I'd happily go down do uh, 10 days in rock lidits and hang out and I think supporting that tour was the first tour I really did working for Adamson the amount of information that I kind of accumulated to myself of how to show someone who is very new to our set of tools how to use them kind of really sculpted how I wrote a lot of the training materials and simplifying it, right? Because, I mean, there's a lot of complex stuff in what we do, but there's also a very simple approach to it that can free up our mind to work on all of the complex stuff. So, you know, 
simplifying how we draw a room in a 3D drawing program like Blueprint and being able to quickly come up with a simulation and showing people the quickest way of using that tool rather than this tool does everything. Rather than talking about the simplest ways of using a software, let's talk about all of the complex coding and simulation and all of this stuff. Well, then people get confused. So simplifying and demystifying a lot of the complex complexities of a piece of software and just breaking it down to simple functions and tasks makes it a little easier for, you know, when you're training someone, I'm sure you found this, you kind of have to find that middle ground between the most advanced people in your class and the people who need the most help. And that's why I kind of limit a lot of the training classes to small groups of people rather than just doing a big online you know, class and then submitting work and all that kind of stuff. Because we've looked at that model. Being able to really spend time with people and training our staff of how to connect with people has been a big part of how we're able to grow and develop and you know, really mentor people, our customers, our users, how to use the system properly. And then that kind of seeds because then if someone knows how to use it, then they show someone else how to use it in the simplest ways and then mm-hmm. they show someone else. And, and you know, it's kind of like ha- word of mouth, hand to mouth kind of stuff. And then you get reports back of people going, yeah, I used the system. It sounded fantastic. It was this guy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember training that guy or that guy came to the other guy's training course or, you know, she really loved using the speakers at this event. So we spent some time talking about it and I showed in 15 minutes how to do this and that. Yeah, it's very personal way of kind of attacking training and learning. I really appreciate what you're saying because it sounds like if you present it in the wrong way for the wrong person or in a way that is maybe too complex at the time, then that person's takeaway might just be that this is too complex for me. And then they're going to transmit that message to the next person that this is too complex and Adamson systems are too complex and their education is too complex instead of this message that you would rather them transmit, which is, here's a simple way to get started. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, and that's when I started, there wasn't any regimented training. And I mean, I hate to say regimented because it's not like it's super strict, but I remember when I was, so going back to the story of, I was looking for prediction software to further my learning skills when I came across the job posting for Adamson. When I started, Blueprint wasn't released yet, and I was given an advanced copy uh, the week that I signed my NDA to come work here. And I remember, I think for a good part of six months, so I started about six months after I signed the agreement, and for eight months, six to eight months, I had this piece of software that I did not know how to use. And there was no documentation because it was still being written. <laughs> like the, the, the code sure. was still being worked on. Sure. And... You know, I'd spoken to my colleague, Brian, who is now heading up R&D. And he was the other applications engineer here at the time. And I remember calling him a couple of times and him just being rushing me through things because he was busy. You know, they hired me because they needed someone else to, to help him. And he didn't necessarily have the time or capacity over the phone to really train me. And then when I came here, the previous R&D head, you know, he English wasn't his first language. So... The bits of information that I got out of him were, you know, small, direct, but not necessarily all of the steps. So the training course really comes out of making all the mistakes in a controlled environment, whether it be demos or just sitting in a classroom or in the office here. So I took this piece of software that was released and tried to find the simplest way of using it. I think a lot of the training courses come out of all of the mistakes that I've made. Sure. 
because yeah, so it you was sort of documented it was compl- your learning along the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because if something again, if something's too complex, you're right. People will tend to shy away from it, with the exception of a select few group of people who want to dig in and really uh, sure your early adopters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's some early adopters that did find it very difficult, and I remember watching the first training course of the software before I took it over. And walking away at the end of it going, I understood maybe a tenth of that. So what can we do to make this better? And always improving on on things like that to make it better for the next time you do it and then the next time. You know, I have one customer, I've done three different three training courses year after year after year. And each year I've presenting them basically the same material, just slightly modified each year to be more streamlined and more improved. And each year they come away going, Wow, that was even better than last year. Mm-hmm. I was like the coursework's still the same. The software hasn't changed. <laughs> I mean, definitely small improvements to make it better. And those improvements come from the training courses and, and that direct communication with people. But, but yet, yeah, being able to present something over and over again, find the simplest approach and then going with repetition. <laughs> so and it really to, sticks in people's mind. And just to wrap up the story, you know, where you started was you had this client who just did this because did ground stack systems because that's just what they always did. And so kind of part of the problem solving there was, oh, you've never seen, you know, what some models can do in, in this prediction environment. And so then you can ask the question of, you know, is a ground stack better or is this other design better? And you don't have to just always kind of guess or, or go with what you've done in the past. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We have so many tools now that guesswork is educated guesswork. I, I refer to Blueprint as the argument solver. You know, like, <laughs> you know, someone says it doesn't work. Well, I, I can now give you models as to why it does or doesn't work. And, you know, people ask me, I mean, I think my favorite question is, what's the optimal place for the speakers to go? And every question I get asked is answered by a question of where can I put them? <laughs> you, know, sure. you know, there is, there is no optimal place. It's, you know, it's a perfect series of compromises as to what, what the end result is, you know, but the key thing, I think the key, key learning point there was, you know, realizing that, you know, in the past, the tools that they had to come up with that weren't as accessible. And then the education wasn't as accessible. So, yeah, I think that was a big thing. Cool. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Blueprint AV, um, because at this year's Live Sound Summit, you gave an intro to Blueprint AV. And if people want to watch that, they can do that at livesoundsummit2020.sounddesignlive.com. But I just wanted to ask you a couple of follow-up questions that I, I found were interesting about your presentation. So one of the things you said is that information in Blueprint AV below 60 hertz is approximate. And this is really common for all of the prediction softwares that we use. And so I just wanted to ask if you could comment on why this is so common. Why is it so hard to do prediction of low frequency in in these models that we have? I mean, I think with all of these models and all of these modeling softwares, it doesn't really matter which manufacturer it's coming from it's really hard to simulate low frequency energy just due to the fact that it's direct sound. So, I mean, everything's approximate, but when you factor in, you know, I might have a 20 by 20 meter space that I'm putting two subwoofers in and I can see how in blueprint, I can see how they're going to interact with each other using the interference button in the simulation tools in flat weighting. But that's not necessarily going to tell me what the end result is because if I have a left-right spaced pair 
and I get that summing in the middle because maybe it's a narrow room. And But what I'm not taking into consideration is the fact that it's a box and that box is going to add, you know, an extra 3 dB of energy of just low, low frequency energy bouncing off the walls and, and refracting and, and duplicating in the room. So I think that makes it difficult to really kind of pinpoint exactly what the subs are going to do, but we get pretty close, mm-hmm. you know, close enough to be able to make a very informed decision about what you want to do. But again, at the end of the day, it's it's the difference between direct sound and what's actually happening in the room. It's, it's a bit hard to simulate because even when you look at softwares like Ease that you can add, when you can close a model and look like look at the entire room, you still can't account for surface reflections and stuff like that fully. Okay. I think that's might might have been where I was going with that particular comment. Sure. What is why waiting? Ah, why waiting? So a lot of manufacturers use something very similar. I know in one particular software, they have two frequency curve where you try and get the line in between where you, where you might look at 2K versus I think it's like 800. Y weighting is kind of like an A weighting curve, but is a bit more narrow banded. And, it, and the Y comes from Y axis, which was the Y10 and Y18 line source, which were one of the first North American made line arrays in the world. And it came from a lot of development with collinear drive sources and stuff like that. And looking at how, you know, because in those days people were using a lot of Excel calculators to predict angles for line sources because it was very new. And Adamson and some of our partners came together with the idea of coming up with a prediction software. And when they were testing and measuring the line source, they were noticing that there was a lot of different interactions like a lot of changes were happening when you change the angles of the PA around kind of where the waveguides couple, which ends up being that two to eight K range, which is also, you know, key vocal range when you're listening to voice, whether it being singing, spoken, or even just announcements and stuff like that. You know, if that area of frequency coverage is clear, then a lot of the other musicality or tonality will, you know, hopefully follow because again, we're listening to a podcast. You're listening to my voice. It's pretty nasal. It's very has a funny accent, but <laughs> it, it all a lot of the information that you're processing and using to listen to the words that I'm saying is in that two to eight k range. So when you think about that in a large concert environment, and I think this is why a lot of houses of worship like using Adamson speakers because there's a spoken message in a lot of cases over music. So to be able to carry that spoken range is extremely important. I mean, we're a communicative species. So being able to have that 2 to 8K range heard everywhere is is a big thing. So when you look at the difference between a Y-weighted simulation and an A-weighted simulation in Blueprint, when you start adding the A-weighted simulation of more frequencies in the low, low end, you start to offset the reality of what's happening when you start to change splay angles of a line source. So... Why waiting really came for the steering of line sources to make sure that we weren't getting dips when you splay the angles too much and the waveguides kind of start to get outside of, not outside of their operating limits, but, you know, to a point where maybe there's a dip by, you know, 3 to 6 dB, which is something you want to avoid. So it just became one of those tools just by narrowing the the frequency bandwidth to be able to kind of get a more accurate response. Uh, And then we kind of teach people to do their due diligence of, 
use the Y weighted as your starting point, but then always check your your A weighted and then your flat range and all that kind of stuff. So you know, it's just an it's it's kind of like you know using a telescope versus a pair of binoculars to look at something. <laughs> you know, it's it's it's, it's change, changing the view view scope just a, a little bit. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of being able to you know, use band-limited pink noise through a system as your signal generator. Right. Yeah, it's essentially that. Cool. Or it's kind of like that in some ways. Jeremiah, you have done so many cool things. Tell us about maybe something uncool that you have done. Or maybe not uncool, but what what is something that happened to you that you considered to be a painful experience or a mistake? And something that happened on the job, a story you could share with us, and then what happened after that? And you already used up one of them. I'm not sure if the, <laughs> that first monitor gig with Broken Social Scene was your most painful experience on the job, but maybe there's another one. I think one of the most painful experiences has to be sometimes you have to go out and... I mean, I go and support a lot of customers in the field, but when someone insists that they know better than you when they're making a mistake and you want to correct them, but it's just politically difficult but they're relying on you to show them what's right i don't know it's 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 hard without you know giving it away too much and and thankfully it it hasn't happened in a little while but there was uh, you know one customer who insisted on having me help them design a system and then i'll design a system and then hand it off to them and then you know, you always get, whenever you hand off a system design to someone, there's always the value engineered version of that system design, which is understandable. You know, like customers work hard to come up with the money to invest in a system from any other brand. And I've spoken to a lot of other support techs who work from other companies and they have the same, same similar experiences. But then getting on site and then having to, you know, maybe they haven't put it where you've wanted to put it and then having to like, negotiate your way out of having to fix mistakes that maybe are being pinned on you that they've made on their own and i don't know that's always a really uncomfortable experience for me i see Uh, so you're you know that at the end you're going to be they're going to blame you or you're going to have some responsibility for the result and so like how do you you can't change other people's behavior but how do you like help them how how do you help that turn out well (laughs) and and you can't and you can't really tell their customer that they're wrong, right? So, because I mean, that's the thing, like a lot of our customers aren't the end user, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm, I'm supporting like a dealer or a distributor and then you have to go out and interface with their customer and then you kind of end up being this, you know, middle person between, you know, what they maybe did, what you designed, what they wanted and it just gets, it gets a little bit awkward. If, if it's not going how you suggested it and you don't ever, you don't really ever want to turn around and say, I told you so, but that's usually my nature to want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those, those are uncomfortable experiences there's, there's been a few of those where I've had to go in and kind of just walk away and go, you know what? It is what it is. And I'll, I'll just live with that. And, you know, sometimes it keeps you awake at night and sometimes it doesn't. What have you learned from that? So to avoid that, are there ways of getting started at the beginning where you sort of share that with people and you say, hey, this is how I've seen this go in the past. If you want to have really great results, you know, try to really adhere to this design or something like that. Or, or is there just no way of getting out of the, that kind of situation? I mean, I always, if someone suggests something that I know isn't going to work, I'll definitely 
detail and experience in where it didn't work and say, well, you know what, I had an experience in the past and these are the reasons why and, and giving detailed reasons. If there's something that I don't think is going to work, I will spend nights, evenings, days, weekends doing drawings to show why something does or doesn't work. So outside of Outside of learning how to use Blueprint as well as I can, you know, I also use a lot of other drawing tools to be able to show, you know, if, if you can present the idea that you have to someone visually, then it kind of can remove some of the misconception of what the end result should be. And then they can come back to you and go, well, you know, that's not going to work because of these reasons. But then you get the reasons why. Okay. So it's not like you end up with, well, that's not going to work. And that's the end of the conversation. You want, you want the reasons why something's not going to work so you can fix it. Mm-hmm. Walking away from something when, when you're unable to fix something is extremely unsatisfying and that's probably happened to all of us. And for some of us, walking away from something is extremely difficult. So, yeah, I mean, if you love what you do and, and, and have a lot of pride in your work, it's really difficult sometimes in those situations to be able to walk away from something that wasn't necessarily what your idea of perfect was, especially if, sure. if you feel like it might carry your name to it at some point in the future. Uh, so Jeremiah, I want to share something and we'll, we'll see whether or not it gets cut. We'll see what, <laughs> what Noah thinks about this, but just want to share a quick story that I think is applicable because I'm reading this really great book right now about how people work in teams. And one of the stories is from this Italian I think sociologist, I think. Anyway, the important thing is the story, which is he developed this really interesting test where he gives you some various materials and they're like, you know, some spaghetti, dried spaghetti and some marshmallows and a few other things. And the goal is to like use all of those things to build a tower as tall as possible in something like 10 minutes. And so yeah. he's run, I think he's run like hundreds of these tests where he always uses a group of kindergartners versus a group of business school graduate students, something like that. And the surprising result is that 10 out of 10 times, the kindergartners always build a a taller tower than the business school students. And the reason that he has decided that this happens is that the business school students, their communication is always based on positioning. So all of the things that they say are designed to keep their position in sort of like the group tribal the hierarchy. hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so they're always worried about like, what, what is Jeremiah going to think about this? How does this affect our relationship? That kind of stuff. And the kinder- kindergartners care less about that stuff. So they stand really close together. They talk on top of each other. They just start grabbing things and doing things and it leads to a better result. And, you know, maybe... And they don't care so much that maybe they're strangers or, you know, something like that. So there's like this key element of like trust and being able to say things and make mistakes that I think is is kind of what we're getting at here when you're like working with a client and they're, and they're a client of somebody else. And it's sort of these complex social relationships where you're like, you're getting into it. And, and really, there's a lot of fear around like losing your you know, social place in, in whatever it is with all these people who you have like a, you don't even maybe even know that well. Yeah. So, I mean, I've got two children who are four and six and I definitely watch that uninhibited ability to just go and do anything, (laughs) I guess, um, without, without, you know, there's fears, but they're different for sure. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like being able to speak your mind and feeling like, you're within your place to do so mm-hmm. is definitely a difficult situation, which is kind of what I was explaining just a minute ago. Yeah. But then also it can be quite freeing when you finally decide, you know what, 
you maybe want to bleep this out, but you know, fuck it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Screw it. I'm going to do it and speak your mind in it, in it, or, you know, put, put the unpopular opinion on the table and see if that changes everyone's perspective. And I mean, we're all terrified of doing it and some people are better at it than others. Some people, uh, it's not care factor. It's actually, it's, it's not a less, less care factor. It's, it's a more of a care factor to be able to put all of the blemishes on out in the open and figure out the solution as best possible. You know, the unpopular opinion is, is never one that we want, but often one that we need to be able to really, you know, take a long, hard look at ourselves, especially when you talk about, you know, people who have done a lot of formal schooling. And again, you take someone who's done a lot of formal schooling as opposed to someone who has figured it out on their own. I've done a lot of formal schooling. I've got a bachelor degree, which really at the end of the day doesn't mean that much for what I do now. But I work with a lot of people and I work for someone who doesn't have much more than a high school diploma. And it's freed them up to be able to push innovation and be able to sit at the table and tell you that you're wrong and and tell you why and admit when they're wrong and figure out the best solution to a problem. And again, they're not bound by this schooled social structure to have to adhere to a set of rules. Uh, I, you know, I always say rules are meant to be broken. I mean, obviously, don't go start breaking laws and stuff like that. But I mean, when you t- talk about, you know, there are certain rules that, you know, engineers would adhere to, to be able to create something like a, a basic circuit. And again, the, you're totally right that the creating a tower out of dried spaghetti and toilet rolls and stuff like that, you know, an engineer would look at it and go, well, you know, I have to put heavy stuff at the base and I have to put the lighter stuff on top so I can get this tower. But then the uneducated person, and I'm not saying uneducated, like doesn't know anything, but someone who's not, doesn't have that education in that particular set of skills might come to and go, well, why don't we try this? And the engineer looks at it and goes, because I've been taught not to. <laughs> so, it's, and it's not about, yeah. you know, and I, I, I say this during training and, you know, it's kind of why I shy away from the term education or, or and call it more training because, you know, in a learning environment, you want to make as many mistakes as possible. Right? Because learning is more about learning the mistakes and learning from your mistakes because that's how we learn as people rather than learning a set way of rules. So, you know, people ask me, what's the target curve? What's the magic target curve? And there's no, it's this. It's not uniform answer of it has to be this because it's more than just that one answer because there's so many, you know, different factors at play in any given scenario. You have to ask the questions of what else is going on in this situation. So this is, this is where the kindergartners walk in and they don't care about what happened before because they're approaching it from the first time, right? Yeah. Whereas, you know, people who have done a lot of formal schooling, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's definitely a good thing because they bring a totally different skill set, but it's about managing that team working together. I work in a, an environment or I've chosen to work in an environment here at Adamson where I'm around such a wide range of skills everything from you know i make a point of talking to our cleaner every day and all of the software programmers java programmers and stuff like that and understanding little bits of what they do you know i don't need to know every detail about what their job is but i work in a creative part of the company where i get to think about things and how we want to illustrate what the engineering team has taken and made work because of the set of constructs that they're working on and show how that works creatively in 
the realm of what the customer needs it from because they're looking at it from a completely different perspective. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, being able to free your mind from being saying, no, that's, that, that's not how you do it. I mean, we all get into those modes from time to time. But sometimes it's good to step out of that comfort zone and, and look at it from a, a, an objective perspective. So what you're saying is ask a kindergartner? Yeah, totally. It's always good to stand around and it's always good to stand around and throw ideas at the table. Uh, sometimes it generates too many ideas. Sometimes it generates good ideas. But yeah, communication and collaboration is probably the most fun part about what we do. So I have a couple of questions for you from Twitter. Aaron Argo says, yep. what power amp company does he prefer for his products? We are using for E-Series, S-Series, M-Series, and Point Source. We're using all lab grouping with uh, lake processing. This is a long-standing agreement that we've had with between the two companies as far as unifying our amplified solution. And then recently this year, we released the CS-Series, which is an upgradable option for any of our S-Series users, which is a Adamson designed and built power amplifier that is made here at our factory in Canada. Well, congratulations. And use, yeah, and it uses all of our own proprietary amplification circuitry and also all of our own software and control that we've been developing for the better part of a decade. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's nice to see it coming together. There is a fun video on the Adamson website where that I guess goes along with the launch of the CS series where you can watch Jeremiah in real time, you know, take the back <laughs> off of the speaker and put a new amp in the speaker. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely fun to do. I think I can do it quicker. We're, we're going to make it the Olympics. Yeah, it was kind of funny to watch because you are sort of like making excuses like, sorry if you're watching this in real time and you're, uh, you know, your co-host, the head of marketing is, is standing there the entire time very patiently. <laughs> yeah. My favorite was at some point in the lifespan of the product, we changed from a Torx to a Hex and I didn't check the uh, check what type of screw was on the older cabinet when I changed it. So I had a handful of brand new Torx heads and of course, all of the cabinet screws were all hex. Uh -huh. and I didn't have the right tools, so oh, I had no. to run out live on live on the internet. I had to run out and go and find the right tool. <laughs> and of course, uh, <laughs> our studio is a bit of a mess right now. So, yeah, that was fun. Question from Kandakar, also known as Do. Please ask him about their AVB-based amplification system of CS series! Exclamation mark. Some detailed overview. So, so yeah. Do you want to say something about that? There is more presentation material to come on the CS series. We released it and there's a few bits and pieces and details that are still being clarified. The CS series is a combination of, as I mentioned, a decade's worth of uh, research and development for a powered loudspeaker with built-in DSP. It's all controlled by a single piece of software called CS Software which is basically you take the design elements of Blueprint and then you add in all sorts of different control and metering and diagnostics in a single software that could be used on a dual screen. It's actually pretty cool. And it's so the, the way it works is that we wanted to look at it from an open architecture point of view in the sense that there are so many different protocols out there on the market that we wanted to find something that was future-proofed. So the control aspect and audio transport all happen over networked endpoints. So an endpoint is any basically DSP chip, whether it be in the Adamson gateway, which is essentially a 16 by 16 DSP matrix mixer, or any of the DSP boards in any of the loudspeakers. So they all are networked together in a quasi-star topology. 
that basically it can be multiple branches, basically like how any other network would work. And all of the control happens over standard network protocol. It happens over using OCA or AES70, I believe. So all of the speakers talk directly to the software. You can monitor right down to driver temperature from the software. So a speaker that can be, I mean, with copper or fiber rather, you can have a speaker kilometers away from you and still be able to monitor it from one single source or multiple different computers on the same network. And then all of the audio transport can happen over AVB. The reason why we chose AVB was there was, at the time when we started talking about AVB, which is probably uh, about 10 or so years ago, a distributor told me a story recently how they came to the factory about 10 years ago and Brock sat them down and had this long conversation about how AVB was going to change all of networked audio's problems. And this is at a time when people were just starting to adopt Dante and people had forgotten all of the nightmares of ether sound and all of those other networked audio. Mm -hmm. So at that time, it had only really been used in automotive and and other industrial applications. But now we're starting to see it come into the pro audio world. We're seeing so much. First off, we're starting to see adoption of it finally, which is good. But there's so much potential that is even untapped now that it's actually future-proofed it for for decades to come. So sorry to interrupt that, but I'm so glad to hear that because I was at an Infocom panel a year and a half ago where someone said that they were basically treating AVB like it was a thing of the past and that now there's even a new standard that they're working on that that is going to take this over. So that's really good to hear that it's still going strong and, and manufacturers are still looking at it for the future. So the interesting thing about AVB is that AVB is kind of like Wi-Fi and then within that there is certain standards and this this is new. So there's a standard of AVB called Milan. The Milan protocol is basically a grouping together of multiple audio manufacturers, Adamson, DMB, Luminex, Elacoustics, Maya, Avid, Presonus, and more being announced every couple of months. We're all getting together and trying to find a way of ensuring interoperability between any and all brands carrying that Milan logo. Now, Milan is a subset of AVB and that guarantees that interoperability. It's not the only kind of AVB. And the reason this came about was because all these manufacturers started coming to the table and saying, we have a product that's AVB enabled. We have a product. So Avid released an AVB product. Maya started talking about it. DMB got on board. You know, L Acoustics have AVB backbone in their, their systems. And then when we all started to go, what if our customers start having multiples of these AVB-enabled products? Mm-hmm. What, hap- what happens for them? So we did it with the customer in mind, and we sat down and went, we need, to, we need to create a group, a working group that starts to check all of the interoperability. So with the CS series, we're going to have Milan, interop- Milan certification in the coming months. So it means that any Adamson product carrying the Milan logo or Milan certification will be able to talk to any other product in the world that carries Milan logo and you're going to just be able to patch and connect them together we'll have control over the same network infrastructure audio transport over the same infrastructure and then in the future hopefully we'll start to see video communications happening sure. as well yeah. cool and and so I'm wondering is is Dante sort of not considered future proof because just because it's proprietary and so that you know company could go out of business and then no one would be able to use the the technology in the future I mean that's definitely a a fear as a manufacturer, you know, when you're looking at third-party products and suppliers, implementing something like that in your product, you have to look at the lifespan beyond what you think the product's going to be 
and make sure that it's going to work in a decade from now. I mean, or 30 uh, years. Yeah, exactly. I don't think in any way Dante is going to disappear. I think Dante will definitely adapt to work on the same network infrastructure. Uh, the reason why AVB and OCA are good protocols to use is because they're not necessarily IP based. They're, I think they're layer three protocol or layer two. This is where my networking terminology gets a bit, <laughs> a bit limp. But you know, now rather than having to look at endpoints on IP based networking, now you're talking about they connect via MAC addresses, and that's they're communicating on a completely different layer. So it means that you need to be less of an IT specialist to connect uh, AVB products than you would be if you were to getting Dante to talk to each other. Got it. Jeremiah, what's in your work bag? Like, what do you take when you go out to these uh, service gigs? I know you have probably have a few things, but is there anything kind of unique or interesting that you can share with us? Nothing unique. I have, I have a workhorse tool bag. I have a Dell XPS 15 laptop, which has been fantastic. I have a Roland OctaCapture that has been destroyed several times and our electronics department have put it back together. Wait, what happened? I, I mean, what doesn't happen to it? I mean, it sits in a backpack because it goes on a plane with me or in the back of a car or anywhere. I have a go bag that literally I can walk out the door and be ready to gig. Oh, cool. I have three Earthworks M23s and just enough cabling to make it all work and then a phone. And honestly, with the amount of work that I do or the amount of the type of work that I'm doing in the field, that is more than enough than I actually need. Okay. Jeremiah, is there a book that you could share with us? What is a, a book that's been helpful to you? I mean, I haven't read a book in a really long time. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the one thing that helped me... funny to me, just the yeah, way you right. said it. <laughs> I've read a book. Yeah. Yamaha Reinforcement of Sound was one of the first books someone gave me that really changed how I looked at things. And it's also been really good at propping up wedges. <laughs> other than that i mean everything's on i mean googling listening to podcasts listening to you know quickly searching something i've probably read user manuals more than i've read books rtfm right right jeremiah do you listen to any podcasts i i find it difficult to find time to be brutally honest you don't have to i just asked uh, you that before i ask you what podcasts you listen to <laughs> i've been watching a little bit of Pooch and Raybold's podcasts. Sure, those are good. Uh, and also the one with Tater as well. Those those were fun. I find that now, just due to timing, I'm watching more and more of the snippets of things. I really like what the Hillsong guys have done with the Creative Technologies Hillsong Instagram channel. And they have these great little bite-sized bits of information on the audio, video, lighting systems that they're using both at conference in their campuses, different productions. I find their productions are quite immensely detailed. Cool. So, yeah, they've been fun. I like to watch things in little snippets rather than sit down and listen to something from beginning to end. I have a very short attention span. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely short. <laughs> Jeremiah, where's the best place for people to follow your work? To follow our work would be any of our social media channels, the Adamson Instagram our Facebook page, we're constantly sharing work that we're doing around the world as far as installations and events when they're happening. We're definitely promoting any event that's happening using our products at the moment in the sense of we've got a couple of shows here, using drive-in shows here using uh, speakers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get 
share as much of that positive news as possible and also any of the bits of information that we're releasing on all of the new products that we're working on. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, Jeremiah, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Sound Design. This episode was edited by Noah Feldman. It features music from an artist named Zenman. You can find more at zenman-music.de. Sound Design Live is supported by Ellis, Learn Stage Lighting, Joel, Sinqui, Bob, Pedro, Martin, Roadie Free Radio, Scott, Ross, Voyager Sound, John, Dave, DC Sound Op, Nicholas, Kuba, Chris, and Terry. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.